So I, I just want to make sure, Jude, if I've got 30 minutes, right? Yes. And then, okay. then there'll be some questions. If, there, if then there'll be time for questions, if there's some questions, we have to put in the chat box. Okay. After the 30, deal. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm an abstaining, maintaining, compulsive overeater from Denver, Colorado. Um, a couple of things before we get started. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank... Um, Judith for asking me to do this. I've been looking forward to this ever since she asked me way back, I think at the beginning of October sometime then. One of the things I wanted to say is just for today, I will be agreeable. I will look as, uh, I will look as good as I can, dress becomingly, talk low, act courteously, criticize not one bit, not find fault with anything, and try not to improve or regulate anybody except myself. The only thing I can do for that tonight is I will look as good as I can and dress becomingly. Um, I want you to know that even though I'm not with you in person, I am fully dressed like I was going to be at a real live meeting. I've got my shoes on. I've got my good slacks on and I pressed a shirt just for you people. I just want to let you know. The other part of it is... Um, Many of you I know have been around for a long time and sometimes we forget a couple of things. And so I wanna read the wonderful um, 15 questions. And you know, you can answer these in your own mind because we're on mute and you can't answer anyway. Uh, number one, do I eat when I'm not hungry or not eat when my body needs nourishment? Two, do I go on eating binges for no apparent reason, sometimes eating until I'm stuffed or even feel sick? Number three, do I have feelings of guilt, shame, or embarrassment about my weight or the way I eat? Four, do I eat sensibly in front of others, then make up for it when I am alone? Number five, is my weight affecting my health or the way I live my life? Six, when my emotions are intense, whether positive or negative, do I find myself reaching for food? Seven, do my eating behaviors make me or others unhappy? Eight, have I ever used laxatives, vomiting, vomiting, diuretics, excessive exercise, diet pills, shots, or other medical interven interventions, including surgery, to control my weight? Nine, do I fast or severely restrict my intake, food intake to control my weight? 10, do I fantasize about how much better life would be if if it were, if I were a different size or weight. 11, do I need to chew or have something in my mouth at all times, food, gum, mints, candies, or beverages? 12, have I ever eaten food that is burned, frozen, or spoiled from containers in the grocery store or out of the garbage? 13, are there certain foods I can't stop eating um, after having the first bite? 14, have I lost weight with a diet or, quote, period of control, end quote, only to be followed by bouts of un uncontrolled eating and or weight gain? 15, do I spend too much time thinking about food, arguing with myself about whether or what to eat, planning the next diet or exercise cure or counting calories? And number 16, is your steering wheel sticky? Uh, and the reason I ask that is because I was a car eater and Batman had the Batmobile, but I had the binge mobile and I would stuff all the wrappers and stuff underneath the front 
front, the driver's seat. But I didn't have air conditioning. So when it was the summertime and I'd roll the windows down, good grief, folks, you cannot believe how many papers came flying all over the place. It was just a three ring circus. Just to, um, to give you a, a little background, um, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for 44 years and seven months. And by God's grace, I have 41 years, three months and 21 days of abstinence, but who's counting? And um, that means that 65.3% of my life, I have been in OA and 61.4% of my life, I've been abstinent by God's grace. So there is that little tidbit. Um, and here's, here's, I had to write some stuff down because I want to make sure that I get this all right, so to speak. Um, the early history is I come from a good German, Irish, Roman Catholic, Kansas farming type family. Um, and my dad uh, was not a farmer, but he delivered gasoline to farmers and small business people in our area. Um, if the uh, business was owned by my maternal grandfather. So I grew up in the house that my maternal grandparents built. It's the only house that I ever knew and all that stuff. I'm the second son in the family of seven children. Um, and my eldest brother had uh, cerebral palsy. Um, and I went, went to a public school taught by nuns. Don't ask me how they did it, but it was done. Um, and obesity tends to run in my family on both sides. So you know, food wasn't, my grandmother once asked me after um, I had some weight off, she said, are you sick? Do you have cancer? And I said, well, no, why? And she says, well, you're just looking too thin. And I was just thinking, good God, I'm still at 200 pounds and I'm looking too thin. But she was, um, but see, she was a depression mother. And if the child was too thin, then that meant that they did not have food and they were unable to feed their children. So there was that little. I was the, um, I grew up a fat kid from grades three. I was already 110 pounds in the third grade. And so from grades three through 12, I gained then 15 and a half pounds each year. So that's uh, 120. By the time I, uh, just a huge amount of weight, 122 pounds or more in, in those years. And I don't have to tell you what it's like not to be able to wear the same size of clothes the next year, the gaposis in the shirts and all that stuff. It was just absolutely miserable. And my top weight was 232 pounds. And I know that because I went to um, have my college physical. Now, the thing that you need to realize is that it was probably more, I weighed more, but I, living in Kansas and it's really humid, I had mowed a lawn earlier that day and um, there might've been some water weight there. And, you know, I was just what they call a chunky kid. Chunky is hardly the word. I was um, an obese and probably a morbidly obese kid at the time. What I was like, I'll tell you what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now. What I was like, I was 
moody and temperamental, even though I mask that with humor and being the goodest, bestest little boy in the world. I was very judgmental, um, but I hated myself. There, were, I just, I was jealous of my classmates because they were thin and they were athletic and all that stuff. That might've been fine, but I didn't wanna do what it took to get to that stage. Um, I was very easily frustrated and at times I still, still am. I was independent in some areas of my life, but I was also codependent because of my brother's cerebral palsy. Um, he was the eldest and I was the second child in the family. And so I always said that um, uh, even though I was the second child, I had so many traits of the eldest child with all of the insecurities of the second child that I became a therapist's dream client, let me tell you. And I hope those kids really appreciate going to Harvard because I helped put them there. Not that I'm bitter, but just stating. Um, food is very important to me. Food was my best friend. Food was my um, comfort. And basically folks, food was my lover. That's the best way I can do it. Food was my lover. And I learned to cook at an early age. And in fact, I'll tell you how strong food was. I used to get up very early in the morning and I'm still a early morning person. I would get up early in the morning and my folks would put, prepare um, the cereal and stuff and put it on the table at night. And all I'd have to do is go in the refrigerator and pour the milk in the morning. So food was just very, very important. And um, one of the ways mom showed a lot of love was she baked. She cooked well, but she baked a lot. And I just, I'm just your basic all-American sugar addict. Bottom line, I'm a sugar addict. I can eat the stuff, whether it's frozen, baked, raw, thawed, or indifferent. I have eaten moldy fruitcake under the auspices of, I need the penicillin. Now, for those of you who are wondering, isn't that a little wild? The answer is yes. And the problem is, I'm a biology major, and I know that the biology that, that mold, you know, penicillin needs to be a refined, but that didn't stop me. Um, and I just, mom used to bake, my mom, I loved her dearly. She was a woman not to be reckoned with, and after Thanksgiving, not even so, because she would bake, and she would bake, and she would bake a lot. And um, thing of it is, um, with all the Christmas cookies she baked, I always thought that I was um, her, uh, her quality control. And I remember one year I gave up bread, sweets, and potatoes for Advent. And after Christmas, went to midnight mass, I didn't go because it was a, a holy thing to do. I went because I could eat for cookies then. And I always called them mom's cookie country. And so I had a taste of each country and then I went back and laid over in several countries until I was full. It was just miserable. I um, I don't know if any of you have ever done this, but I remember looking in the mirror and holding this corpulence, this weight. See, I could never see my feet. And I would hold this and go, God, if I could just cut this stuff off. But I knew that there was more to it than that. What happened was I started to, I went to college and I started to, to drop the weight. I'm one of the few people that you will ever meet that 
lost weight eating dorm food. And we could only go through the line once. And so that's what I can, but I compulsive, but I continued to compulsively overeat and all that stuff. Even though I didn't have much money, I was still able to buy a popcorn popper and eat popcorn. You know, what can I say? I um, I had to walk everywhere. So that's one of the reasons why, why I lost the weight. I never tried to diet. Um, see, mom, mom was a compulsive overeater and she tried all kinds of weight loss schemes, the, um, the sugar, uh, no, the uh, egg and grapefruit diet. What was the other one she tried? Um, let me see. And I just figured if it wasn't gonna work, oh, she also had the shots. I was already questioning a bunch of stuff and I figured I didn't need pregnant, pregnant women's urine running my system. I already have enough trouble. So I just left that one alone. But I figured if it didn't work for her, it wasn't going to work for me. Um, and I, and I, she was very good about writing me. And she told me that, so on my brother's birthday, March 11th, 19, 1974, she went to her first Overeaters Anonymous meeting. And I would get these letters from her. And it was fascinating because when I would go back from college and, and stay at home during the summers and see her, the more I saw of mom, the less I saw of mom because there were a couple of things. She ate a lot of lettuce and she didn't complain as much. And with four or five of us being teenagers all at the same time, that in and of itself was a miracle. So when I, um, when I went back to go do my student teaching in the spring of 1976, um, my eating started to get out of control again. So I asked mom if I could go to a meeting with her. She said yes, and I went to a meeting with her. And I immediately knew that this was home. I knew I was home. For some of us, we just know, but I knew I was home. And so I wanted to go back with her the next week. And she said, no, go find your other, go find a meeting. Here's one in Olathe that's, that wasn't too far from where I lived. And I really got upset and I did what any compulsive overeater do, would do. And we were told, no, I went and ate a whole box of frozen zingers. And then I went to my first OA meeting at, on my own on April the, April the 6th of 1976. And it was a happy housewife homemakers group in Olathe, Kansas. We met at the fire station downtown. And um, that's where I learned and started recovery. When I first came into OA, I was 22 years old and I was a mess, folks. I was a mess and mess, M-E-S-S. I was mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, and sexually a mess. I just, I was in deep doo-doo, folks. I was just, I really needed therapy then too. Um, one of the th reasons why I'm still in program is because I learned to give service very early on. At the time we met for an hour and a half and I had a coffee pot and all of the literature and stuff, we couldn't keep the stuff at the fire station. So I carried the literature in my 1966 Plymouth Fury II, which had a trunk that I could rent out as an apartment in Denver now and make a damned fortune. Um, but when I didn't want to go to the meeting, I had to because I had all of the stuff and I had to go to the meeting. Um, abstinence, the food plan, you know, the food plan was an abstinence plan. That's what they called it at the time. And 
I did, I would do okay and then I wouldn't. And I just fiddle farted around with it for a long time. And I, I finally strung together about a year and a half of abstinence. And then in January of 1979, I willingly broke it on some of the worst lemon cookies I have ever eaten in my entire life. And then for the next eight months, folks, it was miserable. It was absolutely fricking miserable. But I went, I continued to go to at least two to three, maybe even four meetings a week. I continued to call my sponsor. I continued to give service. I did everything. I read the big book because we didn't have, oh, I didn't have a 12 and 12. I read the big book. I did all this stuff and um, I never left. I just continued on. Um, I gained about 30 pounds back and it was just absolutely miserable. On August the 5th of 1979, I hit bottom. I literally woke up that morning and I said, well, and I usually, I don't like to swear at this, but this is that prayer that morning. Well, God damn it, I'm still alive. And that was my beginning of recovery. Um, I began, began to abstain from compulsive overeating. This was right before I started to go to nursing school, which I was eventually kicked out for performance review problems. Um, and there was that. The, um, there were some, there are a couple of hilarious sidelines to some of this. One time I was in, uh, well, during the binging phase, just to let you know, I was in um, uh, working for a nonprofit organization and I went to this meeting and on the way back from this place, I stopped by a donut shop and bought three dozen donuts. I went in and I said, well, the church groups likes this. Well, if you really must know, my car was the church, I was the pastor, and I was the congregation. And I, between Topeka, Kansas, and Lawrence, Kansas, which is about 25 miles or so, I ate either 26 or 29 donuts and got a little sick, so I threw the rest of them out on the interstate. And when I told the story, somebody said, where on the interstate? And I can tell you, every time I drive by there, I know where that was because I feel the donut bodies coming up to, to scare the living crap out of me. Um, there was, I got kicked out of nursing school um, and I had a nursing instructor that didn't like me. And I found out she found one student and she would pick on him the whole time. And during that rotation, I got picked on. Um, and so I prayed for her a lot. I prayed for her an awful lot. I prayed the 14 days. I prayed 28 days. I prayed uh, 42 days. I prayed 56. And on day 60, I said, okay, God, I got a deal for you. I will not do any physical harm to her. A couple of months later, I was at a mall in Kansas City. And who should come up to me? I didn't see her. She saw me. She said, well, Mike, how are you? I just sat there and thought, you didn't treat me well to begin with, and now you're wondering how I am, but I didn't say anything because I don't, I don't say a lot because I don't like to make amends to people I don't like. So I didn't say anything to her, and yet she walked away unscathed. I kept my promise to God. What I'm 
and I can, t I don't share this story very often, but I will with you guys. In February of 1980, I was working for uh, a major real retailer in their catalog distribution center. And I, um, I was keying in Christmas returns. And it was, this thing was 56 acres under one roof. And I wanted donut jams. I wanted them so bad I could taste them, but I had to go walk to them. And I knew that if I, I just wanted them so bad. And then while I was keying in, my keystrokes were wonderful that day. I was keying in, I thought, you know, Mike, if you go back and have those, you can't blame God. You can't blame your sponsor. You can't blame you can't blame your parents. You can't blame the church. You can't blame anybody. If you break your abstinence, it's your own damn fault. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience, but I literally felt, I felt that sugar compulsion truly just literally be lifted out of me. And I have never desired the stuff since. That my friends is what this program has done. What I'm like now, Fear, I'm still kind of a fearful person and stuff, but um, I'm going to take a great many risks in this program. I made application for the priesthood and I was denied at least three times. Of course, there's a real reason why. And it's because, um, as I was saying, you know, each each high school and each each school has their their fat kid and their gay kid. Well, my high school was so small, there were only 60 of us in the high school that I had to pair up. So I was the fat gay kid who was the funny one and all this other stuff. I never got beat up or anything like that. And the other thing of it is you have to realize folks, I've never been drunk and I've never used drugs. I've never smoked marijuana. Um, uh, and don't think that it's because of all religious reasons. It was self-preservation because I always figured if I would get drunk or use drugs or smoke pot, I would lose control, put the moves on the guys in the dorm and either get the crap pounded out of me or even killed because remember this was back in the early seventies. Um, so that's why. Um, in 1984, I moved to Colorado met the lust of my life and moved to another liberal state, Utah, and lived in Salt Lake City for a couple of years. And um, finally left because of his alcoholism and I loved myself enough to leave. Um, I went back to my old university in Kansas. I continued to live this, go to program. I continued to go to OA and do all of the stuff that I needed to even in, in Emporia, Kansas. And I, um, I majored in accounting. And while I was in Emporia, I lived, I worked for a funeral home. And um, I was on, I went with the funeral director on a call. I was, my job was to go out on first calls to the um, site of death. And I went out to there and there was a woman who died. And when we went to the house, she was 350, 400 pounds, and I'm not a very big man, uh, but the thing of it is, I want to tell you, I, I looked at the funeral director, and I said, how are we going to do this? And he says, go get the tarpaulin. So I went out and got the tarpaulin. We rolled the woman on her side, rolled the tarpaulin down, laid her on the tarpaulin, drug her across the bed, and tried, put her on the gurney, 
and as best that we could and tried to do it with a great deal of decorum. Um, and then when we click, I, we had to hear that click of the gurney so I knew things were fine. I went to my OA meeting that night and I wept and I wept and I wept because here it was, recovery was there, but this woman wasn't able to find it. Um, I sat for the CPA exam nine times and never passed apart, but didn't eat over it. Um, I did become a professed religious brother, which means I took vows to a religious community, my church and God in uh, February of 91. I am... Um, I've done a lot of things and I'm most grateful. Um, and I, a couple of things that I wanna say is, I don't like the word sponsor because I was around in the early years and sponsorship, boy, there were a lot of controlling individuals with sponsors. And I now, I don't say that I sponsor anybody. I say I work with others. And if you people would read, Chapter seven of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It does not say bossing others. It does not say telling others what to do. It does not say controlling others. It says working with others. So that's what I try to do. Um, I say that I'm abstaining and maintaining my weight um, for many years. Um, here's a, a couple of fascinating things that I just remembered here not long ago. I weigh less than what my driver's license says. Um, I'm, I'm down 75 pounds from where I was all of those years ago. And you know, it's wonderful. I'm able to walk in my closet and pick out slacks that I wore a year ago and they still fit. Shirts still fit. It's, it's wonderful folks. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, I lay, I weigh less than I did in the eighth grade. And, um, here's another thing. I thought of this one today. My waist size is less than one half of my age. Now, I figured that's something that nobody ever talks about that, but that's, there's a new one for you. So that means that um, I'm 67. And so my waist size is still an inch and a half less than half of my weight. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? I, I'm a man with a low delight level. Um, I just want to let you know that that um, it's a tough choice to leave the food alone, folks. If you're new and all that other stuff, it's a pain. I went through withdrawals. I went through terrible, terrible withdrawals when I got off the sugar. My stomach ached. I, I had that need that was so strong that I knew if I went to that stuff, I was never gonna get it back. <clears throat> so I stayed away and I, I got through all of that. And it's all by working these steps and working the program and, and, and doing all this stuff. Service has been my saving grace. I, um, I have given service at the personal, group, intergroup, state, region and world service levels, have loved it because I'm working with folks who understand me and my disease. You know, I'm not, I'm not perfect with the food. And I think one of the problems, those of us in Overeaters Anonymous find, we strive for perfection with the food. The thing of it is, there are certain times that I trust God with my food. I get up in the morning, I, on my knees every morning, I say the following out loud, dear God, please help me with the food. 
Please help me with my abstinence. Please remove from me the uncontrollable desire to eat compulsively today. Please help me with my attitude. Please let me to be of service to others today. And it's not just uh, service in OA, but all over the place. Um, steps three and 11 are very important to me. Oh, and by the way, I know what God's will is for each of you here tonight. Yes, I do. I know exactly what it is. And you'll say, well, that's kind of precocious, ain't it? And no, once you hear what it really is, you're not going to argue with me. What God's will is for each of us in this program is to abstain from compulsive overeating. That's it. Just to abstain. The rest of the stuff, if you'll excuse the expression, is just gravy. But our job in steps three and 11 is to ask and uh, have recovery from that. One of the reasons that I have what I have now is by God's grace. Grace. Here's my acronym for grace. Graciously, gratefully receiving abstinence from compulsive eating on a daily basis. That's graciously and gratefully receiving abstinence from compulsive eating. Isn't that just kind of a nifty one? And the other one is for those of you who are here and might be struggling and stuff, there's hope. H-O-P-E, hope. And you know what we find in hope in this program? Honest, we, I found honesty, open-mindedness, patience, persistence, prayer, and experience. We all get that stuff. And I just want to close with this. My favorite two paragraphs from our book, The 12 and 12 of Overeaters Anonymous, Step 12. We who began working the steps in order to recover from compulsive eating now find that through them, we have embarked on a lifelong journey of spiritual growth. From the isolation of food obsession, we have emerged into a new world. Walking hand in hand with fellow OA members and our higher power, we are now exploring this world using the great spiritual principles embodied in the 12 steps as the map to guide our way. We gratefully follow in the footsteps of many others who have walked this way before us and were gratified to be making footprints of our own for others to follow. Those of us who live this program don't simply carry the message, we are the message. Each day that we live well, we are well, and we embody the joy of recovery which attracts others who want what we found in OA. We're always happy to share our secret, the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous, which empower each of us to live well and be well, one day at a time.